Then the Lord said to Moses, write down these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. Moses was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights, without eating bread or drinking water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hand, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them. So Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him and he spoke to them. Afterwards, all the Israelites came near him, and he gave them all the commands the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what he had been commanded, they saw that his face was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went in to speak with the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to meet together. And we pray, Lord, that you would refresh us as we come to your word. We thank you, Lord, that this word is ever relevant. Although we're looking at an incident that took place 2,000, more than 2,000, 3,000 or 4,000 years ago, Yet, its implications, its relevance to us is here because you are the living God who deals with his people in whatever age, whatever generation, whatever era. So, by your Holy Spirit, through your word, please help us this evening and speak to us from your word we ask. Amen. Well, I imagine every one of us in this room tonight knows something of the pain of broken relationships. Maybe with a parent, son or daughter, a relative, friend, colleague, even a wife or husband. The closer the relationship, the deeper the pain. And of course it's made far worse when the the break in the relationship is your fault. When really it's down to you, your selfishness, your foolishness, your unfaithfulness that has caused the problem. And the more serious the breakdown, the greater the realization, the growing realization that things may never be the same again. That awful recurring thought that I've really blown it this time. There's no way back. This is surely the end. Now, that is exactly the place and the feelings that the Israelites had as we begin this passage in Exodus 33. You remember the scene following their catastrophic rebellion about the golden calf in Exodus 32, that when we last looked at Exodus, that's what you looked at. And that despair that they felt, that they'd really blown it this time. There was no way back this time. That despair was reinforced as Moses reported to them what the Lord had said here at the beginning of chapter 33. He had made it clear, hadn't he, that in fact from now on they were on their own. 
Remember what it says there in verse 1. Leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt. Go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob. I, I said I will give it to your descendants. I'll send an angel before you. I'll drive out all those tribes. Go upon the land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go with you. Because you're a stiff-necked people. And I might destroy you on the way. So here they are. It's seemingly the end of the relationship. I'm not going to go up with you. You remember that constant refrain in the book of Exodus, my presence will go with you. Do you know there's a great hymn called My Presence Will Go With You? It was written by Colin Goldsworthy uh, to mark the opening of the King Center. My presence will go with you. Well, that's the recurring frame, isn't it? The assurance that God constantly gives the Israelites, my presence will go with you. But no longer. This is the end of it. You'll go to the land, but you'll go on your own. Which makes what happens next in these two chapters so remarkable. Because unlikely and unpromising as it seems, these will actually prove to be the high spot in the unfolding saga of Exodus. Why? Simply because in the midst of his judgment upon a wayward and rebellious people, God will find a way to show his love and his grace to them. And to go on with these people, in spite of their crass foolishness, he will find a way to live with them again. And what's more, as I want us to see, in this passage, in this glorious passage, in this darkest of situations, is found one of the clearest anticipations of the gospel in the Old Testament. It's pointing us forward to something even greater that God is going to do. But back to that broken relationship. How can things ever really be the same? How can they be the same between God and his people? How can things be made right? How can any restoration possibly take place? Well, it all starts with a mediator. A mediator. As we well know by now, this is not the first time that Israelite has messed up. Throughout Exodus runs that depressing, dismal pattern of their rebellion. Repeatedly they ignore God's word, they distrust his word, repeatedly they invite God's judgment, and with each incident they seem to plumb new depths of mutiny. But really, this last one, the golden calf incident, while Moses is up the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments, this last rebellion takes the cake. This orgy was the worst. And as we saw last time in Exodus 32, it not only invited a plague that God sent upon the people as a result, he also ordered the execution of 3,000 of the ringleaders of that rebellion. But actually, that wasn't the end of the story worse was to come did you notice in verse 3 in Exodus 33 verse 3 I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way do you see the reason why God says I'm not going to go up with you because next time it's not simply plague it's not simply death it's something far worse than that it's destruction I'm going to wipe you out that terrible Bible word of destruction, that separation from God forever. And in a funny way, it's, it's, 
It's a merciful thing that he says, I'm not going to go up with you because you're going to rebel again and when you do, that's the end of it. Now when you think about it, therefore, it may not be quite such a bad thing not to have God go with you. Because after all, you are going to go to the promised land. He said that. He's going to drive out these tribes before them as he's promised to do. It is a land flowing with milk and honey. Perhaps it's not such a bad deal after all. You know, you can go there. We won't have God, but we'll have all the blessings. Sometimes how we think as Christians, isn't it? We're happy to have a God who forgives us, who accepts us, who showers material blessings upon us, but we're not so happy with the uncomfortable presence of a holy God. In those times we know we go against him. But to their credit, stupid though they've been, they instinctively realize that what's being offered here is not a good deal. Do you see what they say in verse 4? When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn. Literally, they began to wail. In a rare moment of reality, they realized that to have God's blessing without God's presence is ultimately futile and empty. They need, they want to have him with them. You know what that's like, don't you? In a broken relationship. You've been stupid. But still, you want to have them with you if it was at all possible. And I say to their credit, they realize that. And so in verses uh, 5 and 6, we read about the fact that they strip off their ornaments. They show something of their sorrow. They need, they want God with them. But how can it work out? They can't live with him and they can't live without him. It's not only their problem, is it? It's the problem of every single human being. We are all innately selfish and sinful, proud, rebellious, idolatrous, all the things, the terrible things that we read these Israelites get up to. And we think, oh, that was there, that's ancient. We don't do crass things like that, but we do. Idolatry is the big issue of our age, isn't it? Because if you leave God out, you'll inevitably have to worship something, an idol. Be it money, sex, relationships, holidays, education, whatever it may be. They realize they can't live with God and they can't live without him. They realize, as we do, that deep down in our soul, we need him and there's nothing we can do to restore the relationship. I would love to turn the clock back, but we can't. Enter Moses, the mediator. You see, there's one man left in the camp who's still friends with God. Do you remember that in verses 7 to 11 of chapter 33? There's a glimmer of hope for them in this man, Moses. And in the remarkable conversation between Moses and the Lord that we read of in verses 12 to 16, Moses doesn't plead any extenuating circumstances. It's not as if the Israelites could say to him, oh, put a good word in for us, Moses, would you? There's actually nothing good to say about them. There's no point going that route, and Moses doesn't go that route. Now, what we need to understand is there's a little play on words here in this passage. And it's to do with single and plural use of you. 
You didn't know it was going to be an English lesson, did you? But it is. Tonight, you see, in this conversation, it doesn't come out in our translation. Verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, You've been telling me, lead these people, but you've not let me know who you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your way, so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people the Lord replied my presence will go with you and I will give you rest now this time the you is singular in the Hebrew I will go with you Moses and I will give you rest and we know there's another instant isn't there where God offers to start all over again with Moses so here's this conversation going on and the Lord says yeah I will go with you I will go with you Moses Then Moses said, verse 15, if your presence does not go up with us, notice, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? Do you see what's going on here? It's actually... One of the most wonderful moments in the Bible. It's why Moses is rightly counted to be one of the great men of the Bible. One of the great men of history indeed. He turns down stardom in God's kingdom if it's for him alone. He won't have God's presence if it's for him alone. He turns down God's blessing if it comes to him alone. And he mediates, he intercedes for the people. You see, Moses pursues God for the blessing of the people. He reminds the Lord that this ragamuffin bunch of no-hopers are his people. Verse 13, they're your people. He reminds God of his promises verse 16 he reminds God that it's his reputation God's reputation that's at stake here his bottom line is this it's the presence of God amongst his people that distinguishes them out from all the other nations upon the face of the earth it's God's presence that makes them God's people So if they go up to the promised land without God, they are no longer God's people. They're no longer inheritors of the blessing. And the inheritance isn't simply the land. No, no, no. The inheritance is God himself. That's ultimately the inheritance. And in response to Moses' plea, the Lord relents. Verse 15, he says, I will do everything you ask, Moses. Now, it's not as if God needed his arm twisting. It was actually always his intention to do this very thing. But he does it through the courageous intervention of Moses to highlight the problem that the Israelites can't live without God and they can't live with him unless things change. And it all starts with a mediator. And we all need a mediator. Somebody who will stand between us and God. 
Because Israel's problems, the people of God's problems, will always be the same throughout all generations. We will always mess it up. We will always be foolish. And without a go-between, without a mediator, there can be no reconciliation. Without a Moses, we cannot be his people. Now, as many of you in this room know, the New Testament tells us that the Lord Jesus Christ is our Moses, if you like. One greater than Moses has come amongst us. One who leaves God's presence that we might enjoy God's presence. One who pleads for us in God's presence when we are foolish in God's presence. One who would rather die than leave the people of God bereft and alone and hopeless. You see, the work of the mediator is how the relationship can be restored. But there's still a problem, and it's this. Okay, a mediation has taken place, but let's think about this. How are they going to be able to live among, with a holy God living among them? I mean, the track record is pretty bleak. What makes us think anything different is going to happen? You see, something in addition to the mediator. A restored relationship is necessary. That's the work of the mediator. He wants to restore this relationship. And how, God, how is God going to live amongst this unholy people? Well, the answer is found in the conversation that follows uh, here in Exodus in verse um, 18. 33, 18. Moses says, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. The Lord said, there's a place near where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I've passed by Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back. But my face must not be seen. How does this work? How does this relationship get restored? Well, the answer is found in this conversation. Moses wants to see the glory of God. And the immediate reply of the Lord seems a bit like one of those seasoned politicians on Newsnight, doesn't it? You know, they get asked a question, and if you listen very carefully, it's not answered. And it seems like that, doesn't he? Lord, I want to see you. And what does the Lord say? I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, Jehovah, in your presence. It's not actually what Moses asked for quite, is it? In other words, God says to him, you can hear my voice, but you can't see my face. I will speak to you, Moses. I will give you my word, but you cannot see me. And the reason is there in verse 20, you cannot see me and live. Moses wants to see the Lord, but the reality is so awesome, so overwhelming, it would consume him. God dwells in light unapproachable. He's too awesome. Do you remember that instant in the Gospels when the Lord Jesus Christ revealed something of his splendor and beauty and, and they fell away, didn't they? Lord, said, said Peter, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. There was an instinct amongst Peter that I'm filthy, I'm dirty. Depart from me. You're pure, you're holy. 
You can't see me and live, says the Lord to Moses. The best that can happen for you, Moses, is to hide you in the cleft of a rock. And I will pass by proclaiming my name. And I will cover you and you'll see my back. But my face must not be seen. What does he mean by his name? Well, as you know, name in the Bible simply means character. We agonize long and hard over names, don't we? Especially when we become a parent. What are we going to name them? I wanted to name one of ours Barney. But I wasn't having it. I thought it was a great name. It evokes memories of Fred Flintstone. (laughs) Who wouldn't want to be called Barney? Barney Rubble. Barney Rubble Archer. She wasn't having it. Because names are, in a way, their aspirations, aren't they? We want them to reflect what we hope the character of that child will be. Have you noticed that if you get those books about names, it never says anything bad, does it? The Bible's book on names is very different, isn't it? There's like one who's called Twister. Jacob the Twister, isn't it? You know, imagine, what have you called that little boy? Twister. What? Yeah, Twister Archer. It's just as if he's going to be a crook, you know? So, but in the Bible, there's total realism. In our book on names, there's no realism. It's all joy and it's all going to be good and splendid and all the rest of it. It's a bit like a horoscope, really. But the name in the Bible is very, very important because it reflects the character and God is saying, I will proclaim my character to you, Moses. And what's his character? Well, there it is, isn't it? Verse 19, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. That's the character of God. He's a merciful God. He's a compassionate God. You see, who God is is shown by what he says. Because his words reflect who he is. Which is why Moses is then told to chisel out two new stone tablets and the Ten Commandments are put on them again. Because though they've broken the law of God, the people of God need to have the law of God. They still need to know it, they still need to be governed by it. Because the law is a reflection of who God is. Think about the law of God. I was once doing a coffee morning up in Leicester. I don't know what I was doing in Leicester doing a coffee morning, but I was. And I was asked to speak on the Ten Commandments. I mean, it's a great evangelistic thing, isn't it? But anyway, there's this lady, obviously not a Christian, and she was kind of saying, oh, the Ten Commandments, they're kind of rubbish, aren't they? They're so restrictive. So I said, well, what, what one do you want to think about? What about murder? You shall not murder. If we don't have that law... It means I can murder you and it's okay. I feel like it. I don't like the look at your face. I'll murder you today. She's quickly got the point. Every one of God's laws is for good, isn't it? Because it's a reflection of the God who is good. It's a good thing not to murder people. It's a good thing not to cheat on people. It's a good thing to love people. All the law of God is a good thing. We are so twisted in our thinking, we don't understand that the law is a good thing. And God gives his law, it's a perfect law, to guide his people. The Lord who is 34, verse 6 to 7, 
compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, but he doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. What a God. But how can such a God live amongst people like these Israelites, like you and I, as a community of Christians? How can it work? Because he is compassionate, because he is gracious, because he is abounding in love, because he is faithful to his promise, because he forgives wickedness, because there is hope in God's name and God's name alone. He's the God who is outraged and angry with sin and evil and injustice and all the awful things that we see in the world. But he's slow to anger, patient, not willing that anybody should be destroyed. Because the ultimate judgment isn't death, but that banishment from God, that hell of being separate from God forever. He's the God who doesn't ignore sin, but he's willing to forgive sin because he is merciful. And faced with that glory, Moses did the only sensible thing to do and the only thing that any one of us would do. There it is in 34 verse 8. He fell to the ground. He bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. How can God live amongst such a people? Actually, this tension isn't fully resolved in the Old Testament. Here we have an idea of it. It's only fully resolved in the fullness of time when God himself comes into the world and brings his presence here through his son, the Lord Jesus. This relationship can only work because of who God is, his character. He is full of compassion and his name reflects his character and when Jesus comes into the world that's the name that reflects his character saviour Joshua saviour that's what he's come to do I've come to seek and to save the lost I've come for messed up rebels I've come for foolish people who lived as if I don't exist I've come to display my mercy to you though you deserve my justice. I've come to show you forgiveness, though you've invited my punishment. Grace and truth meet in the Lord Jesus. And God's glory is best seen in the Lord Jesus Christ, there at the cross. So as a mediator who comes to restore the relationship. But how do we know it's happened? How do we know it's happened to us? How do we, I know it's happened to me? How do you know it's happened to you? Maybe it hasn't. I'm not presuming everyone in this room is a Christian. How do we know that this reality of a restored relationship is indeed a reality in our lives? God will leave, live with his people through the covenant. We've seen that, haven't we? I'm making a covenant with you. Chapter 34, verse 10. He's going to make these people an insignificant people. Through them, he's going to perform his wonders in the world. And the greatest wonder is that he should bring us back into relationship with himself and put on display for people to see what it means to have a relationship with God, what it means to have this God as your God. 
You see, at the heart of the covenant is the call to be distinctive. Chapter 34, verse 4. The picture is of marriage. Verse 14, rather. Do not worship any other God, for the Lord God, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. We read that word jealous, we think that's a bad thing, isn't it? Jealousy, that's not good. Yeah, you are. You say God's perfect. He's obviously not perfect. He's a jealous God. It means jealous in the way that a husband is jealous for the love of his wife. That if she goes and breaks their marriage vows, or if he goes and breaks their marriage vows, the wronged partner is jealous. That's not a good, bad thing. That's a good thing. That's a pure thing. That's a holy thing. That's a right thing, isn't it? Because promises have been made. Commitments have been given. And to break it invites destruction into the whole family and beyond. So to be jealous for the relationship is how the Bible describes God's relationship with his people. It always does it in terms of marriage. Throughout the Old Testament, that's the picture that's used. It's taking the closest human relationship and saying, this is how God is with his people. This is how God feels about his people. He's passionately in love with them and he wants their love in return. And therefore, they're running after other gods as these Israelites have done. It's like throwing everything back in his face. They're bound by promises. But the new covenant that we are under as Christians was not written in tablets of stone, but it was written in the blood of Calvary. It was put on display in that gory end of the Lord Jesus Christ who died there so that God's justice and God's love could be satisfied that he might live with us. So how do we know that that's a reality for us? Well, what happened with Moses? Do you remember all the way through this thing? There's a lot of stuff about face going on. I don't know. I know, I mean, I've been swatting on this all week, so it's quite clear, obviously, in my mind. But you might have observed that, even as Jason read for it. There's a lot of stuff about face, and then Moses' face shining, because he's seen God and all this sort of stuff. What's going on there? Well, in, in this incident, it's only Moses that experiences that presence of God in that sense, isn't it? It's only Moses who sees the back of God. And as a result, he hears from God and his face is literally shining. It's brilliant. It's the kind of thing that Peter and John and James saw at the transfiguration with Jesus, isn't it? And something of that reflected glory showed on Moses' face. And it's, it's, it's a little teaser to us. It's pointing us forward. Because Paul picks up this repeatedly in the New Testament. And he talks about the fact that now that glory is to be seen in the face of Christians. In the character of Christians. In the attitude of Christians. In the behavior of Christians. It's to reflect what it means to be with God. Because the whole point of this is relational. It's not about religion. It's not about coming to church. It's about being brought into a relationship with a God who has made us, who knit us together in our mother's womb, who has called us into relationship, who has paid the price for our sin and wants our love and our affection, our devotion. Not our duty, our devotion. Not a nodding acquaintance, but a growing love 
It's what you want out of a relationship, isn't it? You want the thing to grow and to deepen and to blossom. And Paul takes this imagery and he says in 2 Corinthians 3, no need to turn to it, I'll read it to you. We are not like Moses. We all with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory and are being transformed into his image in increasing glory, which comes from God, who is the Spirit. Christian, it's our incredible privilege of a restored relationship, being brought back face to face with God. Big emphasis on face. It's all about this closeness, you see. In the beginning was the Word, says John in John 1, verse 1. And the Word was God, and the Word was with God. The meaning is face to face. When you're that close to somebody, you're face to face. And that's what we've been brought to. We're going to sing in a moment about that, that great song of uh, Stuart Townend. You can tell I'm back, we're back to Townend hymns. But then one day, I'll see him as he sees me. Face to face, the lover and the loved. It's relational. That's the longing. And being brought back into this relationship means it's to be seen. Moses didn't see God, he heard God. We haven't seen God, we've heard from God in his word and as Paul puts it there, we have his spirit that applies the word and brings it to life. This is no dead, dry, dusty, historical book of antiquity. This is the living word of God. This is God pouring out his heart, pouring out his character, pouring out... His, um, his desires, his, his purposes for the world, and he's given it to us. And he says, I'm found through this. But the word isn't the end of it. The word is to bring us to Jesus. That's the point. So how do we show, how's it seen? My friends, it's seen in very ordinary ways, which we sometimes demean, or not necessarily demean, but we don't think a great deal of. It's seen in those acts of kindness and patience and love. God puts his glory on display in taking people, ragamuffins like you and I, and changing us from the inside out and beginning to turn us from one degree of a glory to another so that we, we become more patient with people. Instead of jumping to conclusions, we think, well, what's going on in that person's life that's causing them these issues it's seen in sacrificial living and other person centeredness you don't see this many of you here but I thank God for so many of you because there's just this sacrificial commitment to the gospel to Christ and to one another my friends it's a reflection of the glory of Christ What else has caused that other than the Lord Jesus Christ? It's seen in a gentle character. It's seen in a tongue that speaks the truth in love. Not mushy, ready to say the hard things, but in love because you want the best for that person and you want that person to have that same attitude towards you. That though this is painful for me to say this, I'm doing it because I want the best for you. 
And if people come with that heart and attitude toward us, we know that, don't we? We can accept that. That's where the glory of God is seen. It's seen in reconciled relationships. Because we can't look at this passage and not end at that point, can we? Is there somebody in your life that you know you should be reconciled to insofar it's down to you and in your ability to do that? Is there somebody you need to forgive? Somebody you need to ask forgiveness of? It's all a reflection of God in the midst of people. Forgive one another, says Paul, to the Colossian church, as Christ forgave you. How can I call myself a Christian and receive the forgiveness of God and remain authentic if I won't show forgiveness to other people? Doesn't square up, does it? That's the glory of God because nothing else would cause that. Nothing else in the whole world can cause this. It's the work of God by his word, through his spirit, in the life of the people of God because they love this God and they want to please him. And when that happens, when that happens in the life of God's people, when they begin to shine with something of the glory of knowing this Jesus, then the world takes notice. The world gets attracted. I'd go as far to say, I'm sure there are people in this room tonight and you know exactly what I'm talking about because actually this is how you became a Christian. You saw it in the life of somebody else, what God had done. It intrigued you, it offended you, it annoyed you and yet it was like a magnet. You couldn't let it go. What was it? What was it this, this person the way they behave towards me when I'm insulting towards them. What is it that causes them to deal gently with other people? What is it? You know, that's how it works, isn't it? You've been brought to Christ because you saw something of the glory of Christ reflected in the life of a Christian. That's how it works. It's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Because the glory goes to God. May he be pleased to do that increasingly in our midst. Let's pray.